Welcome to the Highland Wonders Podcast, where we share stories and knowledge from experts about the charismatic species and diverse ecosystems of the Okanagan Highlands of North Central Washington. My name is Jen Weddle, and I am a co-director of Okanagan Highlands Alliance, a nonprofit conservation organization dedicated to protecting the beautiful Okanagan Highlands, which are the traditional and ancestral lands of the Okanagan First Nations in British Columbia and the Okanagan, Lakes, and Colville bands, who are now part of the Confederated Tribes of the Colville Reservation. Half spoken, half sung, this episode is like one of those really amazing quote-unquote kids movies that everyone of all ages happily watches over and over again, because there's something for everyone. In just a moment, Ken Bevis, stewardship wildlife biologist with the Washington Department of Natural Resources, will take us on a tour of Washington's charismatic, iconic wildlife and habitats. You will also hear a second voice. That's Julie Vanderwall, local musician and teacher with the Oroville School District, who accompanies Ken in many of the songs. Okay, I want to prepare you for this episode. It's going to make you smile. It's going to make you say, what? I didn't know that. It's going to make you want to get outside and enjoy nature. Now, if you think you are ready, let's get started with this lovingly assembled, timeless edition of Highland Wonders, first presented at the Community Cultural Center of Tenasket in 2014. Enjoy. Blessed My name is Ken Bevis, and I work now for the Department of Natural Resources. I've worked, lived in Washington, oh gosh, almost 30 years, and have had a chance to work all up and down the east slope of the Cascades in various capacities as a biologist for the Forest Service, for the Yakima tribe, for the state, and um, have this propensity of being a, a kind of a naturalist from, gosh, from a long time ago. And I also uh, have been, um, I, don't, I, don't, I'm, I don't even want to call it writing songs, just call it, they just, I just kind of make them up. And I've been doing this, like, making up songs thing. You know, I was the kid that was always walking down the street going, do, 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 yeah, yeah, do, do. And so um, this has all just kind of come together as an opportunity to uh, share natural history with other people. I was a teacher for a little while. I used to be a junior high school teacher. And uh, kind of an inside joke is everything I do has been couched in being a junior high school teacher because um, I'm a little bit ADD wacky wacky character. And so um, this is a chance to put all those things together with people of like mind who are also naturalists. And so, and I call it the saga of Washington's fish and wildlife. It's an entertainment and it's an imaginary journey, basically from the top of the mountains down to the river. And a couple of things about Washington, that Washington has this amazing array of wildlife. You know, there's, there's things from pileated woodpeckers, hairy woodpeckers, gross beaks, snowy owls show up every now and then, water oozels or dippers, and there's going to be a lot of creatures that show up here. And the diversity of the wildlife in our state 
is beyond the pale. There's about 400 species of vertebrates, um, and that means anything from a mouse to a moose uh, and that would meet the definition of wildlife. And so the diversity of species in, Wa in Washington is fairly remarkable. You know, and if you had to invent a place to be an interesting uh, oh, basis for wildlife, Washington would not be a bad choice for just invented because it's what, about halfway to the North Pole. So it's sort of like it's in a Goldilocks spot. It's just right. It's not too hot. It's not too cold. Uh, you know, and east-west, we've got a mountain range right smack down the middle, an ocean on the left. The weather pretty much comes from left to right. The mountains squeeze it out. So you get this tremendous uh, variety of moisture. So you have moisture, you know, north, south, and east, west, and we have all this marvelous topography. I also, and I'll say this again in a few minutes, but the state is about roughly two-thirds forested. And so, you know, we have this tremendous diversity of habitat driven by climate. Yeah, but, you know, you go to Google Earth and you can just go in and out and look at this where you are, and it's totally astounding. So Washington has this amazing diversity. And wildlife, in general, is an expression of the land. It's an expression of the habitat. It's something that, that is generated by the place. Um, the Department of Fish and Wildlife, we really collectively manage very few species. There's a few, you know, we might count the number of deer we shoot, but most wildlife we're not really managing, we're managing the habitat. We're influencing where they live, and wildlife exists upon the principle of if, if you build it, they will come. Um, well, <laughs> it's presumptuous to imagine, but I'm sort of presumptuous and imagination, imagine it. How would you organize uh, some sort of a sweep of species like that. And so we're going to try it going from the top of the mountains downhill. You know, and so if we went over towards the Cascades or Chilpaca, the generalities of way up in those high mountainous areas that are subject to more climactic extremes in terms of snowfall, in terms of temperature, all of that, there's a whole set of species that live up there in these special places, you know, in the mixed wet and dry environments, avalanches, all of this incredible drama in regard to the local climate. And there's some critters that are remarkably adapted to it, like the hoary marmot, different from the lowland marmot. And these guys, they hibernate about nine months out of the year. When you go up there hiking in the summertime, and there they are chirping at you. They're, you know, they're the great big ones. Everybody knows these guys, right? And, they'll, and then they go away. Bam, where do they go? They sleep for nine months. A big a big guinea pig rodent guy, or maybe mountain goats that actually stay up there all year and get their food in the wintertime because of wind, the wind blowing the, the snow off of these little teeny forbs that they eat. And so, and you might even see a peregrine falcon up there, the great migratory uh, fastest bird in the world that travels all the way from Argentina to the North Pole, and you may see them up in those highlands. But in the summertime, these same meadows will be covered with flowers. And hummingbirds, so think about this, hummingbirds, these little teeny amazing creatures, they migrate up the cascades in the lowlands. So in the springtime, they're in the lowlands where the flowers are. And anybody ever notice in the summertime how there's fewer of them later in the summer? Where do they go? They go up. And then how do they get back south? Down the mountains. They fly. The hummingbirds are just amazing little cool things. You could stand right there and put your finger out. and At nighttime, they perch, and their heart rate goes from like 1,200 beats per minute to like 12. 
16, something like that. It just goes to the, they go into torpor at night. And then apparently they don't wake up straight away. They wake up kind of slowly. They got to get jump started and then they come back awake. So hummingbirds are this remarkable little creature that is worth uh, writing a song about. They weigh about the same as a penny or a dime. So a hummingbird would weigh like five grams, four to five grams. And think about that. That's this incredibly small animal, and they migrate down to Mexico. How could that be? Go ahead, one more there, Anna. We have basically four species here, Calliopes, Rufus, Blackchin, and Annas. You might think of another one. So hummingbirds, this amazing little creature. Go ahead. Hum, hum, hummingbird, hum, 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 hummingbird, hum, calliope, rufous, and black chin too. Flit from blossom to blossom Down the mountains to Mexico Follow the sun Follow the sun Hum, hum Hummingbird, hum Hum of life fly backwards to and fro tiny hearts raised 1200 times miracles flying hot sparks of life hum hum hummingbird hum So the forest, so if you go down from those high elevations, and I'm sort of generalizing here, admittedly, but in the state of Washington, you know, as you come down the mountains, you go into the forest zone, and the forest in our state are dominated by conifer trees because when's the dry season? The dry season's during the growing season. It's driest in the summer, unlike other parts of the country where it's hardwoods and you have water more evenly spaced across the, the year. But So the conifer forest all across the state have some consistencies, though, because if you look at just the shape of the trees, you know, you look at the shape of the habitat, the green overstory, the stems, et cetera, et cetera, they're um, kind of the same. When you look at these forests, you might see places, the wet spots where there's cedar trees or Douglas fir. Interesting, Douglas fir occur all the way from the coast to the top of the mountains. It's the one species that pretty much is in almost every forest type, up to about 6,000 feet, all the way across the state. So there's some deep consistencies about the forest habitats. And forest habitats are 
really complex. They're complex vertically, they're complex horizontally. And so when you consider any kind of habitat, basically the more complex it is, the better it is. You know, you think about a simple plowed field compared to a weed patch, which one has more birds? And so complexity drives, uh, well, biodiversity. And so in the forest of Washington, there's a lot of really interesting critters. Down by the creeks, there's hardwoods because there's water year-round. And so you get the broad-leafed alders, birches, these sorts of things. That has everything to do with the moisture regime. And that habitat is different. It's denser. It has the migratory songbirds like the yellow warbler. So down along the riparian zones, you have something really rich. So when people talk about wildlife, and I run into this a lot, you say, you know, do you have wildlife on your place? And somebody goes, almost always, oh, yeah, I got lots of deer. What kind of deer? Well, in eastern Washington, it's often the whitetails, right? Because they live right down in the brush. They live right by your house. They have a home range of 40 acres, maybe 100. They could live on your place. That's all. Down in the brush, little brush bunnies. The whitetails, these local little critters. I mean, beautiful, though. The deer are like our own impalas. They're our own uh, African antelope graceful creatures. You know, if you really start watching them and consider their elegance, it's fairly astounding. Also, the mule deer. And the mule deer lives more in the open country. They'll go down in the brush, but the whitetails and the mule deer, this is really a pretty interesting thing, too. They live in the same habitats, but very, very seldom do they interbreed. Why? Their breeding is a little bit different time. They don't quite look alike. They don't find each other attractive for reasons we could discuss at length, but we won't. <laughs> but in general, they don't, right? And the muleys, you know, some people say the muleys are dumb. Well, no, they're more visual and hearing, and they want to see what they're looking at. That's right. So the mule deer live in the more open habitats along the edges of the mountains. And they grow those big bones out of their head every year, as do the whitetails. And you think about this, it's a fairly amazing thing that they grow a new set of antlers every year. Their bodies have the ability to move calcium from their bones into their antlers. There's been research, medical research, about whether you could use those uh, physiological pathways for bone repair. Because the whole phenomenon of growing antlers and then rubbing them off and all that. Oh, and they're sensitive, too. Has anybody ever petted, petted a deer on the, on the velvet? I had a chance one time, that one that stuck its head in my truck windows. And he could feel it, but that, then that stuff is shed off. The velvet is sensitive. So anyway, so it's pretty amazing. Yep. And then there's elk, big deer. And we have elk in the Okanagan Highlands, right? Right, they, bigger deer, big ranges, move around, a, sort of a Rocky Mountain mystical thing. And there's predators. So when you have anything that something else can eat, there is predators. And we have this remarkable story happening in our part of the world right now that the wolves have made their way back. And now we have these packs showing up, you know, doing their thing. And there's no animal in my professional career, and I'm, I'm not just saying this for myself, that evokes so much emotion from people. And people love them, hate them. And it's sort of astounding if you read about the history of wolves and humans to see the drama unfolding right here in our neck of the woods is pretty darn interesting. And so, you know, they're back. And so, like, how about the cougars? They're out there, but we don't hear them, we don't see them. Most people have not. You have to spend quite a bit of time. But cougars, silent. You know, they're, they're sneaky things. And they're right around us. And bears. You know, so we got black bears, which are sort of, sort of common in our world. But black bears, I'm going to speak about black bears just a little bit here because they are predators, they're also omnivores. If there is an animal out in our forest that is 
anthropogenic or morphic? Genic. You know that word, anthropogenic? Kind of people-ish is black bears. Think about this. They live a long time. They'll eat anything. They're kind of social. They're smart. They know their territories. They'll eat, they'll, they can pry things open. They might even be able to use tools, kind of. They've got, they don't really have culture per se, but they definitely have family groups. And they look kind of like people when they're skinned, from what I hear. But bears are kind of, anyway, so bears are really interesting. But black bears are sort of disrespected. They're in somebody's trash. They're getting in trouble. And so, um, you know, black bears um, are often around us, but... We don't see them. You see their sign. You see their track. You see their poop. You see their scratches on the trees. There's, there's several, couple of tens of thousands of them in the state, and they're around. I was thinking about what it would be like to be a black bear in regard to our lives because they have an uneasy relationship with people. But, you know, bears are kind of... So I was trying to think what it would be like to be a black bear.
don't eat no bamboo, I don't sleep on the ice, I don't do no tricks for you. No, 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 cause I'm a bear. Black bear. The American bear. are pretty darn interesting. You know, all of these forests, even the dry ponderosa pine, have some of the same habitat elements, and particularly the presence of dead trees. One of the elements of the forest that I think, I, it's, it's sort of my mission in life is to help remind everybody how important dead trees are. Big dead trees can stand for a long, long time. The pileated woodpecker, the largest one in North America, um, and quick, 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 quick. They sound kind of like a flicker, but they're basically pileated, and they make big cavities. They live in big trees. The hole's got to be bigger than the bird. Yeah, they're going after carpenter ants. So carpenter ants in the in the middle of a tree will have a colony in there. The pileated will go back to the same feeding holes and go get those carpenter ants. And they'll use these trees for years and years and years. So if on your property you have trees that have those big oval holes, those are trees to retain because that's where the, that's where the pileated goes and feeds. So peewos are really cool. Woodpeckers have a chisel on their head. A little couple of natural history tidbits before the song. And they hit the tree so hard that if it was somebody hitting you, it would knock you unconscious. And they have really strong neck muscles. And so they're like... <laughs> and they drum as a way of displaying territory. So that... <laughs> that's a woodpecker advertising. He's like, yeah, baby, check me out. Instead of going like... La-dee-da, hey, honey, I'm so pretty. Like a songbird might do. Woodpecker's like a jazz drummer. He's like... <laughs> Check me out. Oh, they do sing too. So the woodpecker is the one critter that can put that hole in that dead tree and make that thing that everybody else can live in. All the bluebirds, all the squirrels, da 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 da. So they're keystone species, meaning their presence or absence lets everybody else use something. Woodpeckers are this terribly interesting group of birds that have a key role in the forest. The king of the woods I got padded brains I do as I should Hey, I'm the king of the woods I'm a crazy red hammer I make cavities Homes for you Homes for me Hey, hey I'm the king of the woods Well, I go up the tree Going tappy-tap Listening for that insect cave When I find that hollow sound I ax my way in slip in my sticky sticky tongue yum i missed it i'm a woodpecker the king of the woods i got padded brains i do as i should hey i'm the king of the woods i'm a crazy red hammer i make cavities homes for you homes for me hey i'm the king of the woods got rhythm rhythm in my bones i'm synchronized I drum at the loudest place I find I tap with my beak I go rappy rap 
sometimes I sing just for fun. Hey, I'm the king of the woods. I'm the king of the woods. I'm a woodpecker, the king of the trees. I got padded brains, I do as I please. Hey, hey, I'm the king of the woods. Hey, hey, I'm the king of the woods. Change, change gears a little bit. We're still going downstream. Now we're going to go down into some fishy stuff, into the streams, because one beautiful thing about where we live indeed is the geology is such that there's not really an awful lot of nutrients usually in the rock. So unlike some other parts of the world where there's limestone streams and stuff, and the, and the streams will be really rich in nutrients, here they're not. Granite, basalt, all of our rocks. I mean, you know, that's a generality, but, but that also means that our streams are really, really clear, and that means that the ecosystem in the water is kind of generated internally. A lot of stuff comes out of that. I, I had a lucky professional break uh, in that the last five years I worked in the fish world. And so I kind of shifted my brain from the upland, you know, the forest into the rivers. And I realized that all the same stuff happens in the water that happens up above. But it's easier to see in the stream only because there's a defined, you know, barrier to the water. So wildlife biologists have data envy on fish biologists because you can get in the... I mean, you ask, you ask the fish guy, how many salmon are in the Columbia River today? They'll say... Uh, 10,706 over wells yesterday. How many cougars are there in Okanagan County? And uh, they would say, well, last year we killed 17 and we've had 32 nuisance complaints. Um, okay, yeah, yeah, I know, but how many are there? You have, to, you have to basically extrapolate. Wildlife is a lot harder to count. I'm going away from myself here. But within these stream systems, you know, there's this beautiful pure water and we have these remarkable, uh, well, they call it the cascades for no reason. And within these streams, the native cutthroat trout is this astounding little jewel that occurs just about everywhere. Beautiful, beautiful things. They don't get that big, but they live in the streams. They kind of move around a little bit, but they don't go that far from where they're from. And then like within that stream system, the bull trout is our resident apex predator. These fish eat other fish. They move around in the system. The work on bulls is such it shows they spawn the highest in the coldest water. They drop down into the main stems. They'll go all the way down to the Columbia River. They eat other fish. They move around. They act sort of like uh, top predators. Well, they, they, they've been called the wolves of the river system because they move around, and they're easy to catch. They're, and there's a cult following of bull trout. There's a whole cluster of bull trout biologists. You know, And of course... I wrote a song about them. But in the interest of brevity, you're only going to get to hear the chorus. So the Latin name for these guys is Savolinus Confluentus. And Savolinus Confluentus, you are a curious fish. If I had to make one up, you'd be my wish. You live high in the mountains in the crystal clear waters. The mountain beavers are my buddy, the otter of confluentus. Hey, hey, you're the fish for me. Yeah, there you go. That's a, that's a teaser. 
so these guys live in this beautiful clear water. They eat other fish, and they're just all over the river system, and they sort of represent a healthy ecosystem because, indeed, if it wasn't healthy, we wouldn't even have them. So, but they, they've got a couple of problems, and one of which is they interbreed with brook trout, which are these beautiful little introduced fish. Everybody knows brookies are not native here, right? But they do really well in teeny tiny waters. They live in little streams where the cutthroats would otherwise, but I mean, they're here to stay, so they're basically part of our local fauna now. Um, and they're just beautiful things. And so the river systems are connected. This is an important point because um, all of these waters, you know, whenever there's work done, whenever you fix a culvert that's keeping fish from going somewhere else, you're basically taking a clog out of the arteries of the rivers. So the rivers are all the vessels that connect you know, together so the fish and everything else can go up and down. And so the rivers are all connected and the ecology of the river systems is fairly amazing. And so the salmon of the Pacific Northwest is an epic tale. The number of Okanagan sockeye, uh, what was it? Uh, how many hundreds of thousands came up last year? It was 400 last year. This year was like 250. 250,000 of these fish coming up the Okanagan, spawning in the tribs above the lakes up in BC, rearing in the lakes, going back to the ocean as juveniles and coming back by the hundreds of thousands, which is a pale number compared to what it once was, but it's quite a few. And so they, you know, and we all know this part of the, the life cycle of salmon that they they come in as adults, and then what happens to them? They die, right? And so there's this kind of epic tale of these animals. Like one Chinook can lay 2,000 eggs. So a big hen Chinook will lay about 2,000 eggs. How many of those do you think can come back as adults? Doing really well, it would be four. We need two. We need two for the population to be steady. Exactly, and in, in the last few years, it's been less than one. And the odds of one of those little fish making it back are amazingly low. But they do. They do. And if there was ever a subject for a song, oh my gosh. And so Chinook, being the biggest of the five species of Pacific salmon, um, let's see, they can reach 50 pounds. They come up in a couple different runs. There's a spring Chinook. There's a summer Chinook. The summers are the ones here in the Okanagan. The young only stay in the river for one season. So the summer Chinook that spawn like up in the Similkameen, those little ones, when they hatch out, they head out. Spring Chinook stay for a whole year. And for a whole year, they've got to dodge the kingfishers and everything else. That's the difference between a summer and a spring. But the Chinook is the biggest. Um, they're the prize fish. And so um, I, a couple of life history tidbits. They come back to the same stream they respond in mostly. They will compete for the reds, which is the nest where they spawn. And so who's seen them nesting where the female digs up the gravel? And so she digs a hole, and then there's a pile of gravel, and then she comes up alongside of it, and then the males will come and fight, and they'll come right up to where she is, and then there's this moment where, and it's kind of one of these mysteries of the world, they know, and they basically, they, they do the wild thing at the same time without touching each other. They do that wiggle thing, and then he drifts off, and she'll do that about five, six, seven, eight times until she's spent, until all of her eggs out. The male will emit at the same time. The eggs will fertilize in the water, settle into the gravel. She'll go back and cover them up by digging the next hole. She just, so she keeps doing that until there's a mound of gravel. 
And then they lay there in the gravel for 90 days, 120 days, stay in the gravel when they hatch out as little tiny things. Then when they get to be about maybe three quarters of an inch long, they come out of the gravel and then they have to go somewhere. And so when they're little teeny, they've got to hide somewhere in the edges of the stream. And so then in the spring, in the spring freshet, when when the water comes up, out they go. And then if they get lucky, they make it back. So um, I imagined a fish. And his name is Billy Chinook. I'm Billy Chinook. I roam the seas. I've traveled far. I'm homeward bound. Met orca teeth. Invisible nets. I dodge the hooks. But I'm not done yet. But I've got to get back I gotta go Upstream is the only thing I know I've got to get back I wanna be in my sweet Okanagan home Okanagan home I barely remember my gravel bed The rocks and walls where I hid my head Then came the flood In the spring I tumbled down Changed everything Well I found myself In an estuary Breathing salt I felt it burn But then I changed I went to sea Ate squid and fish I'm big now look at me I've got to get back, I gotta go. Upstream is the only thing I know. I've got to get back. I wanna be in my sweet noggin home. Well, I made my way around the gyre, north and south, back to the mouth. I'm going home, I'm going home, I'm going home Upstream I go Jump Waterfalls, no problem Jump Push through the rapids Jump I'm going home, I'm going home, I'm going home
Well, here I am. The run is done. And now we slowly die. But we had to get back. We had to go. Upstream was the only thing we know. I had to get back. We want to be. And so these dead salmon in the ecosystem, they feed everything. So that earlier comment about the, the streams being relatively nutrient poor, this is the difference. All these fish coming back from the ocean historically, the, the nutrient pulse was like a huge driver of the ecosystem. So one of the outcomes of recovering the fish indeed will be to bring some of these nutrients back. So the eagles being like kind of the case study of the birds that, uh, you know, how can you miss these things, these bald eagles? And the bald eagles we have around here, some of them nest in the Okanagan. And in the wintertime, there's many hundreds of these birds here. And they come here from the coast. They come here from inland. They come down to eat a lot of these dead fish that are still there. The summers in particular are scattered up and down the stream, right? And so the bald eagle being this powerful, amazing uh, a bird of prey that travels across the continent that soars. And you know, it's sort of interesting because they were so rare for so long and now they're common and consider the way that our view of them has sort of changed from being like, wow, I saw a bald eagle to, oh yeah, there are lot more places lousy with them. That's pretty darn cool. That's a success story. So yeah, they build a big nest. Their eyes, incredibly astute. Apparently they're not like so much magnifying binoculars, but they're just very, very good at picking out the details of what they see. Straight ahead, you know, just remarkable vision. And so eagles are worthy of respect. And they're sort of like deer, that there's one of those things that we can uh, enjoy every day. Okay. And so now, you know, we'll get over here to the Okanagan Highlands, which is a particular interesting part of the world because indeed it is uh, kind of at the north edge of Washington. It's wet and cold and dry all at the same time. And it has these diverse habitats, including it's a great place for bird watchers. And so a lot of people come here to watch birds because there's this remarkable diversity, including these songbirds that are a neotropical migrants. A lot of little warblers like the Townsends or the Yellow, they come back, they're like the hummingbirds. They come back from uh, Central America making these incredible journeys and they come back here to the Okanagan and things like the Yellow Warbler, which I mentioned. And I started a songbird song, but I never finished it yet, so that'll be next time. So like the Western Tanager is one of the major predators on spruce budworm. So, that, so the forest health issues that are coming to our fore from overstocking, the birds can actually help. So any play, anytime you can leave a woodpecker tree or a good canopy tree or something to provide habitat for the birds, that's good. They'll eat some of those bugs. There you go. And, and then there's lots of reptiles, um, like... Uh, 
the bull snake or the rubber boa or the western rattlesnake or a fence lizards. We don't have a lot of reptiles. Reptiles and amphibians both, as you go further south, there's more species. But they are here, and they're charismatic fauna that are worthy of our attention. Um, and then there's the sandhill crane. We have uh, the lesser sandhill crane migrate through here. In the spring in particular, we see them, but they come through in the fall. They fly really, really high. They nest up in the tundra, the ones that come here, and they come through in these flocks. Who's ever heard them and not seen them? Um, they're not great blue herons, right? They're very, very different. And the cranes come from another place, and they show up, and then they're gone. And so in other cultures, cranes have sort of a mystical air about them, particularly in Asia. But um, cranes have this mystique that has to do with the way they appear. They're omnivores. They eat plant matter. They eat lizards. They eat worms. And they're, um, who's ever seen them dancing in the fields? They're really, really cool. They're terribly charismatic. They fly with their legs as their back rudder. Their tail is really short. And so they fly like that, and they have this amazing call. They drop in from the sky, and they're gangly. They're these like, whoa, when they come into land, they're whoa, and then they stand around together. But they have, they have a, like I said, kind of a uh, mystery about them that uh, has served them well. So there's a guy named William Stafford. He was a professor in Oregon, and he loved North Central Washington. And he wrote a lot of poetry. He was published. It turns out he's got a bunch of books. But he wrote a poem about Sandhill Cranes that I read, and I thought, God, that would make a cool song. So that's what's coming up here. So this is mostly William Stafford. I had to change it a little bit. Spirits among us departed, friends, relatives, neighbors. We can't find them at all. We search and we call, and the sky merely waits, high, empty above. But one day, Leaning in from cloud or mist Sharp lonely spears awkwardly graceful They reach for the land They stalk the plowed fields Not letting anyone near And one day will come the cranes Not quite our own and not quite the world's But surely themselves. People go by, pull over to watch. They peer and point and wonder and wonder ooh, and wonder ooh, and wonder at these marvels called the cranes. These travelers, these far wanderers come back to inhabit our space. They plane down and yearn in a reaching flight From there, heaven to earth
They extend our moral life, calling and dancing the craze, piercing through space to reappear. Sand Hill Cranes If you go outside and you'll hear them and it's like where are they? Where are they? Get your binoculars, and they'll be way up there going by. Apparently, they can fly at like 25,000 feet, so, and they'll go long distances on single days. So when you see them coming down Cameron Lake and such, they'll be in a big group. They're resting for a couple of days before they make the next jump. So Sandhill Cranes. I, yeah, I, did, I don't know. I just love that poem. I think it's sort of, it's sort of a mystical-ish. So, you know, this is an important point. I think it's incumbent upon all of us who are naturalists and who love nature, otherwise you wouldn't be here, to teach people about nature because there's a lot of really huge things going on in the world relative to nature. I mean, I'm thinking of even young people who are, you know, on their little smartphones all the time, all the cities, all this stuff. So I think it's really important that we teach people about nature every chance we get. And like the Sandhill Cranes, they have a festival in Othello that's devoted to this charismatic animal and it's a way of teaching people about nature. Did you ever see the book Last Child in the Woods? Anybody seen that one? It's really interesting. This fellow has this hypothesis that because kids aren't exposed to free-ranging nature enough, it's created a lot of problems with uh, attention deficit, this, that, and the other. And he came up with this term called nature deficit disorder. And his whole hypothesis is you've got to get people outside because that's the way our brains actually work. We're really animals that came from a natural environment. And without those stimuli that are sort of randomized in nature and everything, then we go wacky. So anyway, so I think that's part of what we have to do. So the Okanagan Highlands are a remarkably beautiful part of the world with a lot of rich elements to it that, uh, of course, sometimes there are things that show up that from nowhere, like the snowy owl. And I realized when I was thinking about this that this is another species that shows up, but they're from the tundra, and they show up in certain winters. Uh, when something goes on up north, the lemmings are gone or who knows, the school bus broke down, I don't know, but they show up and the snowy owl is maybe the most striking bird in all of North America. I mean, this thing is iconic. My dad used to smoke white owl cigars. And so one of the first birds, seriously, I ever knew about was the white owl. <laughs> And I had a little box, and I had some of my little toys and stuff in. So when uh, Terry took me out to see one one time, I was like, wow, how cool is that? So, of course, you're not going to believe this, but I wrote a song about it. Did you eat? Who did you like the most? Hey, Snow. 
Joey. Where have you been? White silhouettes, cigar box countenance. As birdies go, you're the handsomest. Gorgeous white feathers and sly yellow eyes. Yeah, they're, 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 they're a little bit like sandhill cranes that they sort of appear and they're just these remarkably charismatic creatures. So snowy owls. So here's something. So in your natural history work, you get to know about, you know, say like uh, deer, like that, that big mule deer in the winter range, or bighorn sheep, or bears, or, oh gosh, you know, pick one, mountain goats, uh, wolves, uh, cougars, some big thing that grabs your imagination, that pulls you in, and then... That helps you learn about the particular elements of your particular habitat, be it the shrub step, be it the forest, be it the river, be it the bull trout. And so each time you get sucked into fascination with something, anything, go with it. Learn all about it because when you learn about your special place, that's going to give you the understanding of the landscape. And then when you're out there and out and about, you'll feel like you're among friends all the time. Okay? And so that leads to this last song. And so there's something about the uh, North Central Washington mountains and everything that is absolutely pretty astounding. And that is, all of the pieces are still here. I mean, all the critters that were here basically are still out there at some level. There's hardly any place in the whole United States like that. You know, the, and so this song is basically about all these creatures. They thought that I had disappeared. It's not true. I'm still here. I just need a place to be true to my wild self. Won't you help me, friend? I am a grizzly bear with long claws and grizzled hair. I live in mountains wild where you can't see me. 
I'm a bull trout, a mighty piscivore. I live in crystal streams as beautiful as you dream. Spotted owl. I love big trees and flying squirrels. Come out at night in silent flight. Listen close. They thought that I had disappeared. It's not true. I'm still here. I just need a place to be true to my wild self. Won't you help me, friend? Won't you please help me? Won't you please help me? Won't you please?
The Okanagan is such a beautiful place. We have so many marvelous things here, and everybody here appreciates it. You know, share it. Tell people about it. And I think it's really, really important. I think it's kind of like carrying forward the message of what we care so much about. And how you do it, you know, it's up to you. Your neighbor, your kids, the Okanagan Highlands Alliance. Uh, so, I don't know, I just think it's really important. This podcast is produced by Okanagan Highlands Alliance. OHA is based in Tenasket, a town in the heart of the Okanagan Valley of North Central Washington. We share Ken's sense of wonder at the beauty and diversity of the landscape that surrounds us, from the aspen and conifer forests to the highland lakes to the tumbling creeks that descend to the wide, glacier-carved Okanagan River Valley. We engage in environmental advocacy habitat restoration, and educational activities in our efforts to protect local ecosystems for future generations. To learn more about OHA or to become a member, please visit our website, okanaganhighlands.org. Thanks to Ken Bevis and Julie Vanderwall for this adventure of a podcast episode. We hope you share the podcast with your friends and family. If you're a teacher, consider sharing it with your students. And even more, we hope that you share your love of nature with the people around you. Our theme song, Blessed Unrest, is written and performed by Tyler Graves and Andy Kingham. You can support the artist by finding and downloading the full song from your favorite music platform. Blessed Unrest Blessed Unrest Blessed unrest Blessed unrest